1: Hi there! It's Gem Dadoochoo. You're listening to the Condensed Histories podcast. And what are we condensed here? Well, we take a piece of pop culture and we show how underneath it there's either accidentally or completely intentionally some real history. And what are we doing this time round? Well, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be taking you back to your childhood. But the weird thing is this is a specifically British one? Question mark. I'm gonna say some of this is in America too and probably in other places like Australia, other English-speaking areas. But if you were brought up in, I don't know, Germany or France, very close to to England, you will not necessarily know these because what I'm gonna be talking about this time round is, well, in one case, a tongue twister, but in all the other cases, nursery rhymes, which brings us to the question of what is pop culture? As soon as I say pop culture, there's kind of a cliched image. You're probably thinking of a flashing neon sign and maybe a leather jacket and a jukebox. And, you know, these are all classic images of uh, of pop culture as a whole. Indeed, the sort of sister podcast to this is called neon sadly neon is kind of on permanent hiatus at the moment i really hope that we can resurrect it at some time both me and the the producer guy called dan we're trying to find ways to bring it back but it was such a big project it's kind of been put on hold but i'm doing exactly the same thing here hi welcome if you've moved over However, it's very easy to grab people's attention with something like Star Wars or with like 80s pop tunes. I've done all this before. But if you think about it, popular culture, it means things that influences society and is genuinely widespread. And I can't think of somebody who's more susceptible to pop culture or imagery or songs, etc., than children we are all taught from a young age certain things by rote what what do i mean by learning by rote that means repeating things over and over again i was taught a few phrases of french back in my middle school years as avez vous mangé j'ai mangé that's in my head 35 years later avez vous mangé j'ai mangé however And I do know it's all about have you eaten? Yes, I've eaten. That's it. There are other more sophisticated bits of French that I have absolutely forgotten because learning by rote is very effective, but it is also very limited because you're just learning, you're just regurgitating stuff you've heard over and over again. You don't necessarily understand the, the bigger, deeper meaning. But if we're going to get kids to learn how to use their language more interestingly, how to get them to sing a basic tune, Their nursery rhymes are a great place to go. And so well, obviously I'm good, I did Stand and Deliver, which is a three minute song for 35 minutes, so I I can stretch things out. But really, when it comes to nursery rhymes, I can't do one. Okay, so this will be a collection sort of five or six nursery rhymes and a tongue twister in there and showing you how they really are the start of an interesting conversation about lots of different bits of basically British history okay and and this is the thing my my father quick sidebar gem to clearly not an anglo-saxon name my father was born and raised in turkey he would consider himself turkish even though the dna and the family history is far more complicated than that i digress but the point is he was brought up with various turkish phrases and songs and nursery rhymes but I can't speak Turkish, and nor can my sister. And so my dad, when we were little, would sing to us some of the songs that he knew. And this is an absolutely true story. I vaguely remember these myself, but I specifically remember standing next to my dad as he's changing the nappy diaper, if you're American, of my sister, while singing some of these really nice little nursery rhymes that he knew. And they were... Come on, baby, light my fire. fire. And we all live in a yellow submarine. Which, to be fair, the Beatles' We All Live on a Yellow Submarine is quite nursery rhyme-esque. But Come on, baby, light my fire by the doors is generally not considered a... Children's nursery rhyme. Generally, the doors are considered not necessarily suitable for consumption by young children, but that was my, my starting point. Now, my mother, English is her first language, she w- was far better with the whole nursery rhyme thing. So I remember these as a kid, and then as a historian, I've sort of like delved into them, and these, these are an area which you could argue that the sort of neon and condensed histories way of looking at things is kind of a unique way of getting you into history. Because, let's face it, how many other have said, hey, there's a board game called Monopoly. <gasps> it's all about early 20th century rent laws in America. That's what it's really all about. So that's an unusual thing to perhaps Open up a history podcast, but do you know what? There's been quite a lot of research into the realms of nursery rhymes and and tongue twisters and so on and so forth. So here we go. Here's the first one. It's that old classic, Humpty Dumpty. Um, dee
0: dumpty
1: Now the interesting thing about Humpty Dumpty is there are several different, well there's quite a lot of different versions about the second half, you know, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, that's always consistent, but exactly how the second half of it about, you know, king's horses and king's men, sometimes they're even named, it's like four score king's horsemen and four score king's men, there are lots of different ones sort of to be thrown in there. Now, What exactly is Humpty Dumpty? This is considered to have been quite an old riddle, and it's almost like a play on words. Today, and indeed, pretty much since the 1800s, the early 1800s, so for more than 200 years, Humpty Dumpty's been shown to be an egg. However... It it gets interesting because there are many bits of conjecture because, do you know what, the person who invented this was probably a young mother who wanted to entertain their kid and made this up on the spot. The music that accompanies it actually comes from the 1800s, but it was said as a phrase way before that, at least a century earlier, maybe even earlier than that. So it's led to historians making conjecture. You might have heard that it's got something to do with a siege. This is quite an elaborate interpretation of Humpty Dumpty, because there's this theory that it was a siege weapon during the siege of Gloucester in the English Civil War in 1643. That's very, very specific. And allegedly there was a siege weapon, possibly a cannon, possibly some other form of siege engine that was nicknamed Humpty Dumpty. And it sort of got broken, and, and they had to repair it. And, you know, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. Okay, that's cool, but there is no evidence of that. Instead, what I find interesting is that, and this goes back to the riddle part of it, is that in the 1600s, Humpty Dumpty was a thing, it was a form of alcoholic beverage. It seems to have been a distilled or shall we say condensed version of brandy mixed with ale. So it was quite a strong drink. And so if you drink a couple of Humpty Dumpties, you might fall off a wall. Hey, we did get a little drunk. (laughs) Please don't try this at home, okay? Please drink responsibly. So in the 1600s, if you're saying, hey, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. You're basically saying, is this a drunk person? Or is this an egg? You know, it's a bit of a riddle. Why is a raven like a writing desk? However, in the 1700s, Humpty Dumpty had evolved to just be generic slang for somebody who's clumsy. It is worth remembering that every single word you ever say has been made up at some point, and this can be shown no greater when it comes to technology. You see, if you're talking about the real basics, the things that our Stone Age ancestors would have seen, things like trees, clouds, water, these have really different names around the world. Again, France and England, not that separated, okay? We're very close to each other. Indeed, 1066, basically the French uh, under William of Normandy conquered England and French words came into the English language. However, tree... And arb are completely different in terms of their roots and how they sound and everything else. So, why did somebody look at that brown, tall thing with leafy green bits on it and go tree as opposed to any other word in the world that's used to denominate that species of plant? To know. Just It's just what mood they were in. This does start doing your head in. The way I just described the tree without using the word tree, I'm using other words which have all been made up. It's It's fascinating. The more you dive into the history of language. So yeah, by the 1700s, Humpty Dumpty was just slang for a clumsy person. So again, it's like, oh, is this an idiot or is this an egg wobbling around on top of a wall? And I think it is more likely to come from those sorts of areas than it is from the siege of Gloucester in 1643. Somebody else has also suggested that Humpty Dumpty and not being sort of like buried in his shell, as it were, is some kind of allusion to Cardinal Wolsey during the dissolution of the monasteries and the rise of the Church of England. And we'll kind of come back to the whole sort of Catholic Protestant thing a few times in this episode. And, you know, so Humpty Dumpty is kind of like a coded message to poor old Cardinal Wolsey. You know, he was a good man and he was killed, executed for his beliefs. And now he's just being thrown away like an egg. Again, to me, that feels like too much extrapolation on something like that. So there we go. We've done Humpty Dumpty. Now let's do a tongue twister, which I am going to say very carefully, because it really is a good but simple tongue twister. And that is, she sells seashells on the seashore. Just do that twice quickly and you'll be all over the place because the "sir" and sh noises are very easy to, to mix up. So who's selling these seashells? Why is this worth mentioning? Because this is an overt reference to one of our very first paleontologists and the great news people, it's a woman. Her name is Mary Anning, and she lived in Lyme Regis in the late 1700s and early 1800s. She was born in 1799 and lived till nearly the mid 1800s. Sadly, she died when she was 47 years old. And Mary Anning lived in Lyme Regis, which, in the big scheme of things, it's a lovely place to go on holiday. It's on the Dorset coast, but you know, it's it's not one of those epicentres of global history like Baghdad or Rome or Paris. Okay, I don't think the people of Lyme Regis are going to be particularly offended by that assessment. However, by sheer luck. That particular part of the South English coastline has come to be known as the Jurassic Coast, because there are these huge, big cliffs of chalk and a few other forms of rock that have preserved Jurassic era and Cretaceous era fossils from millions of years ago. And so this was one of the first epicenters of fossil hunting. And Mary Anning, when she was a little kid, like so many other kids in the local area, would basically go fossil hunting. But what's fascinating is this is before the era of geology. Nobody quite knew what these bits of, of bone and tooth were being sort of pulled out of the rocks. They knew they were old but nobody had any idea how old they were indeed best guesses courtesy of like the reverend Bede and some of these other church scholars who use the family tree of jesus from basically because it does mention jesus son of joseph son of and then it goes back and back and back all the way to adam and there are some of these people's ages and dates mentioned in the well not specifically dates but how old they were when they died in the Bible, all the way back to Adam and Eve, so therefore, okay, fine, if we can do Adam to Jesus, then we simply add on the years since Jesus's death, and you get to the earth being about six and a half thousand years old. That's the best guess they had at the time. They were using all the scientific information they had to hand, it just turned out to be woefully wrong. However, this uh, this is still an argument to this day, particularly in America.
0: Evolution is just a lot of that Hollywood
1: hooey. (laughs) Anyway, so the point is, Nobody quite knew what they were. The idea of dinosaur wasn't going to come out till later. So they just pulled out these interesting bits out of the rock. However, in 1810, Mary's father passed away, which put the family in a a tough situation. Suddenly, this beachcombing needed to have more urgency to it. And so she turned it into a living. And by 1826, she had created Anning Fossil Depot. Now, admittedly, I'm cutting out a fair bit of time here, but what was the area particularly rich in was fossilized marine life, like ammonites. But more flashily, she was the person to bring out some of the best preserved ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs ever discovered, particularly in, in England. And what happened over the years is, of course, yes, we're in the early 1800s. We're at a time that's very patriarchal. And so she was so good at finding this stuff and earning a living from it. Make no mistake. She she was coming up with her own scientific ideas, but it was a means to an end. She was doing this to survive and live that these scientists from London, particularly the relatively newly created Natural History Museum, They were coming and talking to her, and she knew more than the pros. And yet they were the ones getting all the credit. Indeed, they were buying the specimens from her. Some of them just simply said, discovered in Lyme Regist. Well, you didn't say who discovered it, and the answer was Mary Anning. Indeed, what's interesting is her life, as she dug up all this stuff and explored all this stuff and started making scientific conjecture, over these finds, she pulled together some other women. So, interestingly, the story of paleontology is quite female-focused, particularly at its very beginning. Shout-out also to Charlotte Merchinson and Elizabeth Philpot. Elizabeth Philpot came all the way from Oxford because she'd heard so much about Mary Anning. And, uh, interestingly, Mary Anning was one of these uh, first people to find these rather strange rocks and to make some conjecture around the fact that possibly these were preserved faeces defecations of these ancient animals, which we now call coprolites. So she's an incredibly important part of the story. If you're looking at paleontology, if you're looking at the study of the Jurassic era, And to this day, she is properly credited. Things have been made right in the Natural History Museum. They have made a big fuss about Mary Anning. They got a copy of the portrait of her in her life and also her finds as well. So she's properly credited in the museum that basically ignored her for about a 100 years. So all that from, Jem says it again carefully, she sells seashells on the seashore.
0: and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: And now it is time for Ba Ba Black Sheep. Ba Ba Black Sheep, have you any? Now, contrary to popular belief, Barbar Black Sheep is not racist. This was created at a time where, basically, there were almost zero black people in Britain. And it wasn't derogatory towards any humans. It was literally derogatory towards black sheep. And also, this is probably the oldest one we're going to be talking about, because this is this is preserving the fact that Edward I king of england in the late 1200s and very early 1300s he needed to generate money for his massive amounts of of military campaigns also his extremely expensive building of castles in wales and so he created a wool tax because by the 1200s and this is interesting believe me shepherding and sheep is an interesting part of english history in the medieval era I'll explain all right now. If you are thinking about how to farm land, as soon as you do agriculture, as in, you know, literally doing things like corn or wheat or whatever, anything like that is quite intensive. However, shepherding sheep, you've got a relatively large area and you only need one or two people to look after these sheep just as they wander around. The other thing is sheep cut grass cows use their tongue to pull out the grass so if you've got a small area with a few cows on it eventually there's going to be no grass left however with the sheep because they just cut the tops of the grass off the grass will continue to grow the whole structure is basically self-sufficient it's very very clever the other thing of course is that sheep do everything that cows do and more you can obviously raise a cow and butcher it and maybe you got its cowhide but the cowhides are usually turned into leather and nothing else okay and very rarely as i discussed in the stand and deliver episode very rarely is leather used as human clothing however with sheep on the other hand th- yes they can do milk yes of course they can be butchered for for their meat they can make cheese you know anything that a cow can do so can sheep. anything you can do i can do better i can do Indeed, you can make leather from their hides, but why would you want to do that? Because they grow wool and wool is an incredibly useful product obviously it can be turned into clothes but it can be turned into overclothes. it can be turned into tapestries and all these other things it's in- so sheep are incredibly useful they're pretty easy to look after and that grass going back to that grass again a lot of crops need quite a lot of nutrients from the soil except grass it kind of grows almost anywhere so sheep can live on relatively infertile soil so long as there's some kind of shrubs there to to eat. So they can even sort of like go around in boggy peaty conditions as well. This is why Wales, which doesn't have a huge amount of normal easy fertile agricultural land, but it's got lots of sort of bogs and sort of hills and mountains, that's why there's so many sheep in Wales. So because of that over the 1200s wool became a major part of the british economy well you know, i say british because it's largely wales and england at this point bits of ireland too that's all under the crown of england in inverted commas so it was very important and it was even exported to the continent sometimes the raw wool was sent out and they processed it they Turned it into clothing and so on and so forth. So it was an incredibly important part of the English economy, and therefore, when Edward put a tax on it, it wasn't necessarily a particularly high tax. But there was so much of this stuff being funneled through the the coffers that it was one of these. Quantity rather than quality of money, and yeah, he made a fortune, but of course, it affected disproportionately so many farmers. So, all of this is mixed into the barbar black sheep. Indeed, in the original version, the one you've just heard mentioned, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane, in the original version, there was none for the little boy who lived down the lane. It was seen as an egregious, unwanted tax. Let's face it, nobody likes taxation. Shortwave radio. Insurance time. cancel that trip to Mexico. Why do they do Baba black sheep? Because black sheep were considered to be unlucky for a very practical point. If you've got sheep with white wool, they can be dyed any colour you want. Black sheep, you can't dye them any colour. They're basically black. So they have their uses, but they are considered less viable, you're, you're basically unlucky to have a black sheep. So it's not in any way to do with race, it's to do with practical wool production in the 1200s in England. The thing is though, that this wool production saved England sometime, a generation after the death of Edward I. Because when the Black Death struck in the 1340s, it wiped out between a third and half of Europe's population. Again, I talked about that intensive agricultural area, but because England and Wales had so many sheep, it was less proportionately affected. Same amount of people died, it's assumed. I mean, we don't have precise records, but because, as I said, you just didn't need as many people to look after flocks of sheep, there was less impact to the English economy. That's not to say it didn't get affected. It it was greatly affected. But you get all this taxation, certain amount of disease, an entire economy and an agricultural structure and plan, all this from that simple little nursery rhyme. This is why I'm really enjoying this episode. Okay, now let's move on to something sort of related. Ring-a-ring-a, Rosie. It could be ring a ring a Rosie or Ring-a-Ring-a-Roses. And what some people think is, oh, it's to do with the plague. It is, but let's go back to the whole Bar-Bar Black Sheep thing for a moment and say the very first outbreak of what we would now call plague or the Black Death, as it was told, called at the time, that was in 1348. This seems to be a reference to the last great outbreak of great the Great Plague in London in 1665. So, as you can see there, you're talking about more than 300 years. And this is something we need to all be aware of right now in, in the COVID world. That it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the Black Death. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Spanish flu 100 years ago. The fact is every single pandemic finishes and it seems to finish after about a couple of years because by then everybody who's got it and survived is now immune so there's this is what we mean by herd mentality prior to 2020 herd mentality was a legitimate phrase used by virologists and academics understanding things like pandemics whereas it became very heavily politicized in 2020 where you know shut up and stop whining and if we all all get sick we can keep the economy open and yeah and it's like okay it is more complicated in the 21st century there's no doubt about that but the basic principle of the survivors basically don't get as badly affected by the disease is something that we're going to see now we've artificially increased that with vaccination thank you so much with the vaccinations there but it, it it's kind of complicated this one is a reference to the last great outbreak of plague where the traditional phrase is 1665 this great outbreak 1666 great fire of london that burnt away all the plague well if it did that's a bit weird because Why did it stop happening in France as well? England was not the epicenter and not the only place. And what you see over the 300 years between the first outbreak and the last outbreak is there's just occasional times of it exploding out there. During the Elizabethan era, almost exactly in the middle of all of this, there was a number of occasions of, of outbreaks of plague. There was also at the time of Henry VIII's early life, he was not meant to be king his brother, his older brother, a guy called Arthur. There nearly was a real historical King Arthur of England, but he died of something called the sweating sickness. Now, the problem with any documentation prior to basically 1900 is that medical understanding was very limited. You know, there's been some people saying, oh, you know, in the medieval era, there was a great medic of Muslim descent in Baghdad who talked about sickness being smaller than a grain of rice. And that's the first sign of sort of microbiology and pathogens. Yeah. Okay. He came up with that idea and promptly it was forgotten by everybody. Nobody was trying to deal with viruses and bacteria because nobody could see these things. So it was all like wrath of God stuff and Fire. Power of God or something. You know, let's kill the rats, which was probably a good idea, but let's also bleed ourselves. That's a terrible idea. So all of this comes from ring-a-ring-a-rosy. Now, the, the idea is that this ring of rose colour is actually the welts, the buboes, the sores that are created by the outbreak of the plague. And the whole a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down is the fact that we've now contracted the virus and we're dead. It is interesting how many of these nursery rhymes are so dark so let's move away from this and have something completely different with rock a bye baby
2: rock baby on the treetop when the wind blows the cradle will rock when the battle Cradle will fall And down will come baby Cradle and all
1: Now wasn't that soothing. Although at the end, there's a sort of sinister bit, but this is easily the most metaphorical of all the ones we're going to be talking about. This one really blew my mind when I started doing the research. I knew bits and bobs about some of this stuff, but I really didn't know about by Baby, and I seem to remember somewhere saying this is all about the early colonists in the new world, i.e. America, and how sometimes to keep babies safe, Native American tribes would Hang their children from like branches so the wolves couldn't get at them. That's garbage, turns out. Instead, this is all about revolution. No, really, honestly. See, the baby is a specific person in the royal family. So let's go back to Queen Elizabeth I. So Queen Elizabeth I dies. She's a Tudor, she's from the Tudor family. However, she didn't have any kids, so we need a new ruler. What did they do? They picked the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who'd been executed under the order of Queen Elizabeth I, and he was from the Stuart line, which goes back centuries in Scotland. However, before the Scots get too bent out of shape, it is worth remembering that this man spent most of his life in France. He was fluent in French and English and didn't really know Gaelic. So. But by now, the royal families aren't exactly... Akin to their local people in terms of bloodline and genetics and all this kind of stuff. Did he consider himself Scottish? Yeah, maybe, but you know. Anyway, so he was. This is where it gets confusing. He was James the first of England, but he was James the sixth of Scotland. So there've been five prior Stuart kings called James in Scotland. This has caused slight consternation when Queen Elizabeth was crowned Queen Elizabeth II everywhere in the united kingdom and it was pointed out hang on we've never had a queen elizabeth in scotland because she predates the unification of the country so she should be queen elizabeth the first of scotland but anyway let's move on so anyway so james i becomes new king of england all right He's a bit Catholic, but he is also sort of fairly Protestant. He was quite open to the Catholics until you get the gunpowder plot in 1605, when Catholics tried to blow him, blow him up. And it kind of proved the point that, you know, maybe we should watch out for the Catholics. So anyway, he dies. His son, Charles, the first civil war gets his head cut off his son. Charles, the second, he comes back. And this is the interesting bit. He has lots of children, but the problem is he doesn't have any legitimate male heirs. So his brother, James II slash seventh, comes in. So this is all kind of the same family, the Charleses and the Jameses, okay? It's why you get taught at school, if you're in England, the Tudors and Stuarts. But it's completely inaccurate because the Stuarts have been going on for centuries before the Tudors. I digress. James II, however, by now you, you might have noticed, there's a lot of sort of Protestant-Catholic stuff going on. James II was pretty openly Catholic, and he ended up being kicked out of the country because he was just too Catholic for the tastes of everybody.
0: Oh, that noise. Oh, it's, the, it's the Catholics next door, I'm afraid. No! Uh, I'll, I'll just go and burn them. Back in a minute.
1: So another one of the children of Charles I. This is his daughter Mary. Comes in with. This guy called William of Orange, because he comes from the Netherlands. And this is called the Glorious Revolution. So, the whole rockaby baby thing, the baby is James II's son. And the rumour at the time, I love this, there's no evidence of this being true, is that as his wife was giving birth, a secret Catholic child was brought in because you know you are technically Catholic the moment you're born because of the whole concept of original sin and all this sort of stuff anyway it was brought in and actually James II's son who when James got kicked out he was called the old pretender his son Bonnie Prince Charlie was referred to as the young pretender anyway he was illegitimate anyway so he didn't have any proper claim to the throne whatsoever all of this is scurrilous garbage from the time so the whole rockabye baby the baby is james II's heir this whole the when the wind blows the wind is the revolution it's the fact that the protestants are going to be protesting the continued catholicization of the monarchy and potentially the rest of the country and obviously, we got the cradle coming down. The cradle is meant to be the end of the Stuart. So if you like, it's a really dangerous, revolutionary song to be singing. You know, if the royals from James II's court had heard you singing it, maybe they knew what it meant, maybe they didn't. But the point is, you could see how you get into very serious trouble at a time when free speech was not a thing. So we're going to come to the last one now. We've been the the garden with all this sort of stuff and before i do the last one i'm always going to say come on guys please click subscribe give us a review it really really helped and if you could share the love if you could when i tweet these out i tend to tweet out a little link to these every tuesday morning when there's an episode coming out watch out for that if you could sort of retweet it that'd be really useful if you could just tell your friends if you could post a link on your facebook or instagram or something like that anything like that would really help us grow this podcast if you like it Tell some other people about it. Right, the last one is Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary. Mary, Mary, Quite
0: Contrary, How does your
1: garden grow?
2: With silver bells and cockle shells, and pretty maids all
1: in a row. We are back to the Tudors again on this one. We are specifically talking about Mary the First. One of the children of Henry VIII, this is where it all gets complicated. We've all t- already talked about Elizabeth. The Tudors, really, the more you look into it, were a pretty unsuccessful t- dynasty. They lasted for barely a century. It's only just limps over a hundred years. And you got Henry VII being the usurper. You got the whole mess of Henry VIII's reign. Yes, you got Edward there as well, but he didn't. Last, he lasted just a couple of years. Then you got Mary flipping everything back away from Church of England to become Catholic again. And then you got Elizabeth. It's all just a mess. I mean, Elizabeth's reign, they managed to make some good headway out of it, but some of it seems to be more blind luck than anything else. I digress. So the point is this. Queen Mary was a devout Catholic and was horrified that her father had turned England away from the true Church of Rome. And so she basically did a kind of counter-reformation. And there were some bloody purges of Protestants, just as there have been executions under Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth I later of Catholics. So, too, Mary did the same thing with Protestants. Now, there are some people, there's been a lot of rewriting of Mary or, or revision of Mary, saying, you know, she does have the title in some circles of Bloody Queen Mary or an equivalent thereof. And there, yeah, there were executions. But if you are going to start comparing her to Henry, her dad, or Elizabeth, sister probably not as many as those two but she's the one with the reputation so that's interesting however this is the darkest i'm finishing on the grimmest of nursery rhymes because that garden is a garden of gravestones as she walks around surveying all these gravestones and then there's the silver bells well those are thumbscrews to f- torture somebody into confessing that they're a Protestant. And then there's the cockle shells, and those were a form of torture which would go over the testicles and crush them. So yeah, I, I, it's a pretty grim way to end, but guys, I really hope that, yeah, maybe you'll think twice saying these to your children, but they don't know, they don't know the history. Don't play them this podcast and you'll be safe and sound, but it will put all of this stuff, I really hope it's put it all into a slightly different context. That's all from me. As always, I hope you enjoy these, and as usual, Please, please do spread the love and I'll hopefully speak to you soon.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.